Once again, we continue on in our sermon series through uh, the book of 1 Samuel, Jesus is our King, and uh, the theme for tonight for 1 Samuel chapter 18 is the favor of God. Now, there's lots of little subplots within this chapter. For instance, we see what it looks like uh, to have an evil spirit-led life, which Saul has, uh, and then a Holy Spirit-led life, which David has. Uh, But primarily what we see is Saul's jealousy for David kicks off. I guess it's been showing itself a little bit in the last few chapters, but Saul's jealousy is going to be a primary theme for the rest of this book. And David, we see here, has the favor of God. We in the church say things like uh, anointing or, or God's hand or God's blessing on someone All of it boils down to having favor from God. And we see a few people throughout history, David being one of them, uh, Mary in the New Testament being one of them, having God's favor. And so what David does with his life, his relationships, uh, his job, everything uh, is blessed by God's hand on his life. And it ticks Saul off. You see, remember as we walk through this uh, that Jesus is the better David. That's what we learned last week in David and Goliath in chapter 17, that Jesus is the better David, not only through the line of David, a thousand years down the the family line, but he is uh, the perfect king. And so we need to understand there's a lot of folks today seeking favor from God. Ultimately, God's favor has been and is only shown through his son, Jesus Christ. You, you, can't, you can't work your way around it. You can't say, okay, things ain't good between me and Jesus right now, but I, I, uh, I, I want God's blessing. I want God's hand. I want God's favor. God put one big stamp on humanity and saying, here, my favor rests in my son, <laughs> and that's it. And so it's up to us to align ourselves with the Lord's work. You see, uh, I had a friend <laughs> in seminary. I wasn't expecting this question. It was kind of weird, but we were having a barbecue one night, and our families were all together, and his family had been struggling financially a little bit. They had moved their family across the country. He had a couple kids. He couldn't find work, and he was used to making a good amount of money in the job that he had prior to going to seminary, and he asked while me and a couple other friends while we were eating, he asked this. He said, how can, how can I get God's blessing? How can I get God's blessing? And first we were kind of like, that's a weird thing to ask. Like, what do you mean? He talked about how he he wanted to see his his family blessed. At first we didn't know what to say. But after we talked about it for a long time, we we essentially came back to this simple truth. Uh, The promise for God's favor on your life, for God's blessing, it's a spiritual promise. Okay, There's no promise for your material blessing. You go back to the Old Testament, you say, but look at the Israelites. They, in Deuteronomy 28 through 32, like they had, they had blessing of long life and, and different things, health and wealth and all these things. That was a covenant for the Israelites. Okay? You're not <laughs> the Israelites. You've been grafted into some of their promises, uh, but we have a whole new covenant, a covenant under Jesus. And so uh, the promise is spiritual. This isn't as we talk about this tonight, this isn't a health and wealth, self-gain kind of thing. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be God the Father, who through Lord Jesus has graciously given us all spiritual blessings. All spiritual blessings. Not material, but spiritual. So, as we walk through this tonight, I want you to see knowing that we in Christ Jesus have all we need. We have been blessed. We have the favor of God on us through Jesus Christ. How we can use the very favor God has given us to see every part of our lives redeemed for the sake of his kingdom. Okay, so we're going to be talking about relationships, friendships, your job. We're talking about all these different things tonight. But it's not about how you can have more or better. It's how we can use those things to show redemption to all of mankind so that they might be found in Christ Jesus. So let's walk on through this tonight. Chapter 18, verse 1. If you've got a Bible, feel free to flip. For those of you who are new to us, we uh, preach out of the ESV, uh, that version in case you are curious. It says, As soon as he had finished speaking 
to Saul. So remember, at the end of chapter 17, after the David and Goliath thing, Saul brought David to himself and basically said, who are you? And then took him into his household uh, from then on. But it says, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. All right, first thing we see that can be redeemed in our lives. When your faith is in Jesus Christ, when Jesus is Lord, we see that we have redeemed friendships. When we say redeemed, we mean we got higher purpose. We got value that wasn't there. We got something better than what it was. And when it comes to friendship, we have better friendships. You see, it says that Jonathan, remember Saul's son, his soul was knit to David. Meaning, literally, he was one with David. Like, as far as dudes go, this is about as intimate as it gets, right? They, they, they were they were besties. They were BFFs. They were, they were good friends. What in the world is going to make Jonathan's soul knit, so to speak, to David's? It's because they had the main thing in common. It's because they were both passionate about the Lord. It's because if you go a few chapters back, you see that Jonathan fought an amazing battle because he had faith in God. God's hand was on him. They have gone through the same things. They are working towards the same stuff. They've got the Lord as number one in their lives. Their friendship is blessed. Their friendship is better than an ordinary friendship. You see, the world offers us all kinds of opportunities, commonalities to build friendships on. You got hobbies, you got your age, your walk of life, you're a college student, you make friends with other college students. You like sports, you, you make friends with other people who like sports. Those who do what you do, you, you have commonalities that make us become friends with people. And I'm not saying that's bad. Matter of fact, I'm saying that's a good thing. But our job as missionaries and disciple makers are to take the world's basic commonalities outside of those things that are sinful <laughs> and use those to boost us into redeemed relationships, friendships. Take them to another level because God has a much higher purpose than just your enjoyment in friendship or the commonality that that friendship might have as a foundation. You see, God first gives friendships for the sake of his kingdom even before our own enjoyment. Like, I don't have friends who I'm not intentionally trying to lead to Christ. Like, that's not, like what kind of friend are you <laughs> that, that doesn't have the kingdom as, as the primary uh, hope for the other person's life? I think sometimes we like to have our church friendships and we like to have um, our college friendships or our, our friendships with other parents. And, and, and then we have kind of these special friendships that are about Jesus. But when you're a believer, all friendships are about Jesus. At least they should be. That's our challenge. That's our challenge. How did Jesus handle friendships? Imagine he had commonalities to the, he spoke to some degree. But he spoke the things of God. He spoke God's word to them. He spoke of God's kingdom. Like he, he, They were centered on the will of the Father. He shows us what it's like to take friendships and call them to a higher level. You see, I think that um, I think there's three or four easy things that, that we can understand about uh, Christians' uh, understanding of, of redeemed friendships. How can our friendships be more valuable? How can our relationships with others be more valuable? The first one is simply that we're free to love. We're free to love. Isn't there some undue pressure on a lot of our friendships? You know, like you start, you start college and you meet someone that, that's new to college as well. And you guys become buddies and you think like, we got a, we got a big connection. Like, I don't want you to ever graduate. I don't want you to ever leave. Like this is, this is, I met you at a time in my life where I was lonely and insecure. Like we can't, we can't lose each other. You got friendships that you met in the midst of heartache, in the midst of victory and joy. 
Like they take on a lot of pressure to keep them going. When you are a, a follower in Christ, though, you're free to love people simply because you love people. Your value, your identity is not caught up in that person. Therefore, you don't fear telling them the hard things because you don't fear them leaving. You know, in Christ Jesus, I have every spiritual blessing, so I am secure in my identity. I am secure in who he says I am. I am secure in the value he places on my life. It is not given to me by this person. I can just love them. I can just love them. Second way I think we have redeemed friendships is that we have a unity in the gospel. There's a lot of things to be unified in. But a unity in the cross is beautiful. Uh, you see the world trying to figure out problems, don't you? You look at the news right now, right? We're talking about the racism stuff. We're talking about cops. We're talking about all, all these things, big moral issues in our culture. And I, I hear them talking about it, and I hear the talking heads and the pundits um, talking about how we need to not be racist anymore. Why? Right? We're just speaking over all of America. They're just saying, we, do, we need to end racism. Why should we end racism? Well, I mean, because it, like, we should. That's just what we should do. It's like, okay, that's good. That's good. But like, we can take it way further. Like, we should end racism because of the gospel and recognizing that we don't see people by the color of their skin, but by the blood that covers them. We don't see people because of the color of their skin. We see them because we were all created in the image of God. There's no races. There is the human race, and there is a creator. He has a plan for each and every one of us. There are so many bigger, beautiful purposes in the gospel to why we should end racism than just saying we should. I, to, to, I mean, things like that need to end. But man, having friendships unified in the gospel, there is no better unifying factor than the blood of Jesus. It changes everything. Third thing I would say uh, that, that our friendships are redeemed in is that mission gives it a higher purpose. Let me ask you this. Would you guess, just, just guess, would you guess that a few people working at McDonald's, a few workers at McDonald's, or a few soldiers who just went off to war to fight for this country in the midst of battle, they come back. Who do you think has the closer bond? Probably, unless those at McDonald's went through some tragedy together or something. I'm sure there's a great bond over flipping burgers. Probably the soldiers. Because when there's purpose and mission in your friendships, you have a bond that is much greater than anything else. And the gospel gives us the greatest purpose of all. In your friendships, are you helping them to follow Jesus? Are you encouraging them to follow Jesus? And last but not least, I would say this. I would say um, simply the reflection of the gospel is how our relationships are redeemed. Look at, look at Jonathan's behavior. He does, he does something that seems crazy. He, as the son of the king, he is, he is the prince, so to speak. If someone's going to be a king after Saul, the Israelites are probably thinking, probably Jonathan, that dude's awesome. He follows Jesus, everything's good. And he takes off his princely robe. He takes off his armor. Like, this is a man's man soldier, right? Up until David beating up Goliath, the best victory against the Philistines was Jonathan's fight. And the dude's taking off his armor and giving it humbly to David, basically saying, you are the next in line. You are going to be king. Like when you reflect Jesus to other people, your friendships are just more enjoyable, are they not? Like I don't fear, this is beautiful, I don't fear in my friendships that, and even I'll look at my family, my in-laws, my family, those who follow Jesus, I don't fear if we get into an argument or if we have a little issue. I don't fear that, like, the relationship is over. Because I know if we're following Jesus, we're going to reflect Christ's love. We're going to come back to our senses. We're going to be led by the Holy Spirit. There's going to be restoration. It's just so much more enjoyable. So much more enjoyable. So let me ask you, how would you characterize your friendships right now, both with believers and non-believers? Man, are they blessed? Do they reflect the value, the redemption that Christ has given to you? Because you're the one who's got to take it in, whether they're Christian or not. You've got to make that relationship. You've got to let it reflect the redemption you have in Christ. You can't expect them to bring that to the table. I, um, 
I did the Lord's Supper um, at an apartment complex this, this past week. I took uh, James Ward over there, and we had some um, low-income elderly folks in the community that live in this apartment complex, and, and we told them we'd have a worship service with them. And so I was scrounging around to get some juice and some bread before we left, and I couldn't, I couldn't find all that I needed, but I found this old bottle of juice that just had like this much juice in it, and, and we just needed to set up like 10 or 15 little cups or whatever. And usually you do this all behind the scenes, right? And if you're from a very liturgical church or a Catholic church, you know that like nobody sees you do this. You, you pour Jesus' blood and his body, you're breaking it all up. But I'm just standing there doing this in front of them because we don't have any walls to separate us. And so they're, they're waiting for us to start. We're already a couple minutes late. And as I'm pouring out the juice, Jesus' blood was coagulating <laughs> in an unhealthy manner. It was clumping out. I had asked James, don't ever ask a single man to smell something. I asked James before we went because my sniffer's not very good. I said, dude, does this smell good still? He said, Smells good to me. Later, he said he didn't know what grape juice was supposed to smell like. So <laughs> I saw it clumping out into the jar. I was like, oh, gosh. They didn't know what was going on back there. I just told James, I got to go. I'll be back in 10 minutes. Just chat with people. I came back with some fresh juice. Uh, and, and it wasn't moldy. <laughs> you know it's bad when the blood of Jesus gets moldy. And I gave them that juice. They had the same thing, juice. One that was old and nasty and need to be done away with. And then they had juice that was much better. When it comes to friendships, some of us got some pretty average friendships that we're not taking to the next level. There's a better way to have friendships. And so I'm, I encourage you, go back, introduce Jesus into this friendship if he's not. Ask him like we said on Sunday. Ask him if you don't even know where they stand with God. Ask your friends this week, what do you believe? What do you believe. I think God wants to do some amazing things for his kingdom with the friends you have. Verse 5, and David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. There's that favor again. He was successful wherever. So that Saul set him over the men of war. So he's a military commander now. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. Now picture, you're the king, and you just won a war against your arch nemesis. This is your hero's welcome. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. You see, he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? So here we see that jealousy starting to come up. And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. Remember, God's not creating evil. He's created the capacity for evil, but he's still sovereign over all things. If he wants to use something evil, he can do it. And he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. And he did day by day, as he did day by day, Saul had his spear in his hand. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Oh, that's not just once, it's twice. <laughs> Second thing we see, when you've got the favor of God on you through Christ Jesus, you have the opportunity to have a redeemed workmanship. You are a redeemed laborer. So David's got two jobs in these passages, in these verses. Number one, he's a military commander, and guess what? He's great. <laughs> he's great. And the second one is he's playing this instrument, this lyre. And so he is great at that as well. But some of us are not liking our jobs right now. Whatever job you got in life, you're not liking it. Listen, you, <laughs> we need a perspective change. Has your boss ever tried to kill you <laughs> twice? <laughs> Um, like, like David has it bad. His boss is a punk. His boss is Saul. Now, notice the tension, right? So David and Saul are coming back from war. David's getting all this credit, and Saul, he's mad. And you see the jealousy is stirred up. You see, because Saul has a worldly view. 
of his job. He wants to be the top dog. He wants not only to be called king, he wants to enjoy the respect, the verbal affirmation. He wants, he, he's thinking to himself, even though maybe I didn't climb the ladder, I've been given the top rung, I need to be treated as such. This is what the world offers you with your job. This is what the world would say, hey, you want to be happy, you want to enjoy, you want to make the most of your opportunity, work harder. Try hard, climb the ladder, you'll get to the point where you don't have to bow down to anybody and this will bring you happiness. Oh man, doesn't that just feed into some of our sinful desires? Our pride, our ego. But that's all that the world has to offer. How did Jesus handle his job? Well, number one, he finished it. I ain't talking about carpentry. He finished it on the cross. This redefines how we view our job. He persevered. But he viewed his job as serving the Father, fulfilling the Father's will. That's always our number one task, is it not? As missionaries, you might have uh, a paycheck that says McDonald's or Walmart or somewhere in between, but really it's just God saying, I'm paying you to be a full-time missionary wherever you are. You can redeem your job, you can add value, you can add purpose to it for the kingdom's sake. You see, David, he could have quit. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. Some of us, we've quit jobs for lesser reasons, have we not? Than getting a spear thrown at us twice. And if that's happened to any of you, just <laughs> keep, it, keep it to yourself. Tell the cops, but keep it to yourself. He could have quit, but he doesn't, he doesn't serve like worldly standards would tell him to. You see, he knows he's got a higher purpose. He, he, he's serving faithfully because that's where God has him and he sees his role. And even though he deserves praise and honor, he is putting himself in a humble servant's position. You see, that's what we are as missionaries. We are, we're humble servants to the king. It's gonna come across in our workplace. Let me ask you right now, how are you viewing your job? Maybe some of you are in your career Maybe some are just working jobs to get through. How, how, are, how are you viewing it? Is your prayer life <laughs> healthy in the morning simply because you got to pray just to get through the day? <laughs> is, uh, is your job um, the source of your constant frustration? Is your job tearing you up so much that your relationships are turning bad because you complain nonstop about your job? I think we can have a renewed, a fresh perspective towards the work the Lord has given us. My son, we pray every night. I love to pray with him. He's not very excited about prayer right now. I wish he was. He doesn't really like to pray. But before we go to sleep, I say, buddy, can I pray for you? And I, don't, I'm, I don't make him pray. I just say, can I pray for you? He says, mm-hmm. I say, okay, now, you can pray for whatever you want. We could pray for your friends. We could pray um, just to thank God. We could pray, and I gave out all these things, just a wideness perspective. Anything you want. And about a month ago, after I said that, he said, I want to pray for my broken trucks. My broken trucks. And so I was like, eh, that's lame. We'll pray for your broken trucks. I said, God can redeem anything. He can fix your broken trucks. He gave, I said, let's thank God that, you like, that, that you're okay with broken trucks. He gave you broken I'm trying to redeem this stupid thing as much as I can. We prayed for his broken trucks. Every night that I put him to sleep after that, and I asked him the same question, he said, broken trucks. And I said, okay, but you can pray for anything you want. He said, my broken cars. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. He won't get past that. Like, it's just broken trucks and his broken cars. And for him, that's a big deal because his perspective is limited to broken trucks and broken cars. I think some of us, that's what our work attitude has been lately. All we can see is the grunt, the grind of the everyday, and, and, and we're starting to lose perspective that our jobs are incredibly valuable, that God has given us these jobs uh, for his sake and his kingdom, and we need to have a renewed focus, a renewed desire. Here's a few different ways I'll, I'll, I'll quickly say that we can redeem our workplace Number one, 
is when you work hard at work and your motivation is to work hard, we do it as believers because we have gained, not because we lack. You see, that's what the world says work hard for. You're lacking something. You need more money. You need to get to this position. You work hard to get something you don't currently have. But believers, it's upside down. That's the kingdom of God. It's an upside down kingdom. We've been given everything we need in Christ Jesus. We are fat and happy spiritually. And so we work hard because we're simply free to work hard because we're just serving the king. You see, some of us, we're upset at our work environments because everyone, uh, they, they act ungodly. And we're thinking, man, I have a hard time. It's okay for me to be at cross training or at grow group or whatever because I got Christians. And, but when I go to work, people are cussing and they're just running amok. And, and I just, I have a hard time being there. Listen, who at your workplace do you know already has something? They've gained something beautiful being the Holy Spirit. How many of you know, you, how many people at your workplace? Well, I don't know who you work with. But I'm going to assume most of you are believers, so at least one of you <laughs> has the Holy Spirit. Now, even if you work in a horrible place, you come to the table with awesome things. Bring that to the workplace. If you're the only one there with the Holy Spirit, work your tail off because you've got the Holy Spirit, and you're showing them the work of Jesus on the cross. He, he, did, he persevered. He pressed through. It wasn't easy. He just did it because he loves you, and he loves the Father's will. We work hard for different reasons. Second thing when we see that we can redeem the workplace is that we serve God first and man second. It's all throughout scripture, but um, probably no more clear than Colossians chapter 3. Um, you see Paul say that we serve God first, not man. And then he says at the end of the verse, he says that we, we, uh, we serve the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you're working, when you're serving you're working for God first. Don't ever forget that. Some of us, we talk about accountability. We need accountability to keep. God's watching. God, God's the one that you are serving. But I would say this. This means that uh, if God's the one who gave you your job, we shouldn't get down about the job we have. What if, for God's sake, he wants you to work a lame job for the rest of your life? So we're talking like a low pain. You can't really advance in it. It's just, like, it, it's just kind of a miserable job. What if God said, I want you to stay in this job for the rest of your life? Would that be enough for you? Like, would you be okay with that? Are you content simply knowing whatever God tells me to do, I know I'm working for him. He's the one who gave it to me, and I'm just going to stay put. It's a good way to check your heart as to whether you really want the world to gain stuff, or are you okay with what God tells you to do? And last but not least, Another way we redeem the workplace is because it's our mission field. Here's the funny thing about jobs. This is why we got to break our, our, our mindset as to climbing the ladder um, and living the American dream. Missionaries are not good at living the American dream. It just doesn't gel well. Because some of the best disciple-making, harvest-is-ripe mission fields pay the lowest wages and are the lamest jobs. Some of the highest paying jobs, some of the best things according to worldly standards, put you, in some cases, out of a position to make disciples. They put you in an office by yourself, or <laughs> sometimes you don't have to talk to anybody. Is it better to get paid all of the riches of the world but not be able to make disciples? I'll tell you what, when we went uh, from church plant to church plant, and I knew I might have to work another job other than just ministry, I was, I was preparing myself mentally to be applying at McDonald's, to be applying at Walmart. Even if my education might say I could go somewhere else, I was thinking to myself, honestly, for the people we're going to reach, what better mission field than fast food or Walmart? Like, if you're, if you're simply looking at your job, not based on how much you could get paid, even though providing for your family is important, but it's not like God forgot that, right? What's the best mission field? I remember Terry had three nursing opportunities in Lynchburg, Virginia. We moved out there. And one was really good pain, uh, another one kind of, another one bad. But the one that was bad was in a rough part of town with people that, that um, were disgruntled, <laughs> and, and it was just a hard environment. We prayed about it. She chose the least paying job because she thought mission-wise she would have the greatest opportunity to make an impact. She hated that job. But we were affirmed by the end because we knew, and this is where the greatest mission field is. 
Listen, let me let me encourage you before I move on. Let me say this. Some of us, we know this in our minds. It's time for us to start, start spurring things on spiritually with our coworkers. And don't give me the excuse that you can't talk about Jesus at work. Number one, even if you can't, do you know that because you tried? Or are you just guessing? Number two, if you don't think you can, great. Get to know your coworkers. Invite them to Applebee's for appetizers. Go hang out with them outside of work. That's just one more reason why uh, you get to build relationships with them outside of work. And number three, even if you can't talk about Jesus at work, it doesn't mean you can't act like Jesus and show people the love of Christ. But you've got to start somewhere. I remember when I worked lawn care, I found myself by myself all day long. I rarely got a chance to talk to my customers because, um, you know, you're mowing lawns. And I was a baby Christian. I didn't know nothing about nothing. I remember, though, my heart and my desire was to make disciples, even if I got 20 seconds with them once a week. I remember one little old lady, she knew more about the Bible than I'll probably even <laughs> ever know as a pastor. And she, she, she knew her stuff. I remember I was trying to minister to her. Like, she, she should be ministering to me, but I, I was trying to, to minister to her. We're talking about going through hard times. And I was so new to the Bible. I was reading it by myself. Um, I, I didn't know a lot of the Old Testament names and all that kind of stuff. I was so new. I was trying to explain to her, there's this guy, there's this character in the Bible who he, um, he went through some hard times. Like the worst of the worst happened to him, and his friends were all kind of like poking at him and stuff. And, and like, see, most of you are thinking, oh, this is Job. This is Job. This is Job. And she kept saying, oh, I think you're referring to Job. And I said, no, that's not the name. She kept saying, we talked about it for a while. Afterwards, I realized the reason we didn't connect is because I thought his name was Job. I had <laughs> never heard anyone say the name Job. And I was like, yeah, that, that was it. I didn't even click in my mind. I was such a newbie. And yet, man, I gave it a go. You've got to give it a go. Again, simply ask some of your coworkers, what do you believe? See where God takes that conversation. Get to know him. Verse 12. And Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul, you see that over and over, this is the, the favor of God, the favor of God, the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Next thing we see, as missionaries, we have redeemed reputations. We have redeemed reputations. Some of us, we don't really like being known as the Christian coworker. Do you got coworkers you think of you? Like, oh, that's the Christian. I got a Christian coworker. It's you. Some of us don't like being known as the Christian friend. Like, there's kind of that, that, that church culture stereotype that gets placed on you. Because they're not just saying, like, you follow Jesus. They, they're saying, oh, they do weird church stuff. And whatever their idea of church is, they're just putting that on you. You're like, no, that's not me. And you're frustrated and you want to like prove them wrong. They're like, I'm not weird like you think. I'm going to argue with you until I'm blue in the face and tell you I'm not weird. I follow Jesus. I'm not weird. We don't like, you see the irony in that? You're weird if you do that. We don't like the reputation sometimes that comes with being the Christian person. I'll tell you straight up, we need to get over that. We need, we need to not be ashamed. Someone, listen, I've been called way worse, way worse than the Christian guy. But now I'm the Christian in our family. Uh, I, I, I have been the Christian neighbor to people. Like they know me as the pastor guy now. You see that you get reputation for following Jesus. You get a reputation. How did Jesus handle his reputation? Because you know he got one. <laughs> At first, it was that he's just an ordinary guy. His brothers and sisters thought, man, this is, our, this is, is this not the, the person we grew up with? But then as he starts doing these miracles, what's his reputation? People start coming to him all over the place. Sick people, people who need to be healed, people who, who are jacked up. What does he do? 
is you say, well, you need to get it right. I'm not exactly who you think I am. Let me explain for a long period of time who I really am. No, he just says, your faith heals you. Let's him touch him. He touches him. He, I am who you think I am. I'm just going to accept it. I guess my repu- reputation is. There's always going to be haters. If your reputation is that you are found in Jesus, there's going to be people who hate you because of that. Jesus promised that. But I'll tell you what, there's going to be some that act like they hate you because they see the power of God in your life. They think, oh, what are you holier than thou? But when times are rough, guess who they're going to come talk to? All of a sudden, you're not going to be angry that you got a reputation as a Jesus follower. It's not all bad when the world's a little bit hostile towards you. You see, David, he eventually cashes in on his influence. He's got a reputation. In verse 16, it says that all Israel and Judah loved David. You see, later on, he would would be worshiping the Lord like a crazy man. And people would be dancing and singing with him. Israel worshiped the Lord when they were around David. We got to understand. Listen, if you're going to go down, we're all going to pass away one of these days. Right? And if you're going to go down... You better go with a reputation that if people hang out with you, they're going to hear about Jesus. If people are around you, they're going to be influenced for good. If people are around you, they're going to get a taste of the Holy Spirit. What would people say about your reputation right now? How many people would say, man, when I'm around them, I know we're going to talk about Jesus. I know they're going to love me like we're going to, we're going to, I'm going to, I'm going to see what the Holy Spirit looks like. What do your non-believing friends tag you as? Have you done anything to dispel whatever goofy understanding they have of church? <laughs> like if they've got a crazy understanding of it and you're just the Christian guy, like, or gr- have you done anything to show them, hey, let's talk about this. This is what my faith looks like. We all got reputations. We all got reputations. Whether you're a businessman or whether you're a big brother or whatever you are, there are people God has given you to influence that some of us can't. One thing, when I see the church, I look out and I just think, look at, I mean, look at this room. Look at this room. What if each one of us, there's 25 of us, what if each one of us have 10 people that the other people in this room don't know? Some family, friends, coworkers, people that we've built decent relationships with. We're talking 250 people. We get influence for Christ. Everybody's influenced by something. I think, though, we get so used, so we get scared of risking our reputation that we don't use our reputation. And Jesus is saying, you ain't got no reputation in and of yourself. You don't have to fear losing it. You're like, well, I just don't want to, I don't want to push this friendship or this coworker. I just, I just, we got to keep on good terms. What does good terms on earth matter if people are going to hell? We've got to get over this protection of our reputation. Your reputation is because Jesus saved you. You didn't earn it. You're not going to lose it. Who are you influencing? Of course, you know, as uh, uh, even hearing stories from pastors, you know there's a reputation that comes with church leadership and when people find out you're a pastor, they act different around you. Just last week, when um, we took some vegetables to this this low-income, again, apartment complex that we did the worship service in, and we did this the day before, we took some vegetables to them, and I was, um, I was talking to one of these ladies who I had talked to several times before, and it was all small chat. It was just talking about the weather, and I could tell she didn't really want to get to know me very well. Um, she knew I was from the church. I was a Christian whatnot. And then mid-conversation, she stopped and she looked at me. We were putting a puzzle together. And she said, are you a pastor? And I said, yeah. She said, bless you, honey. Bless you. About 50,000 bless yous later in the same conversation, I realized she looks at me different now. She had no idea I was a pastor. And to her, this means something. 
her demeanor change. And part of me inside wanted to say, you know what? Now, like, now you think I'm something special? I'm the same guy 10 minutes ago as I am now. But when you're a missionary, you nix that real quick. And you say, you know what? You think it's cool I'm a pastor? Let's talk about Jesus. <laughs> we had a great conversation about Jesus. If someone's going to be using my reputation, like if they're, if they're going to see me and say, you know what? Oh, I guess, I guess this changes things. I found out you follow Jesus. I'm not offended. Let's talk about Jesus. Use it. Use it. Maybe God's opening the door for you right now. Someone who maybe you didn't have influence in their life a month ago. And right now at work, at school, somewhere, God's opening a door for you to influence somebody that you previously haven't. Are you going to take a step of faith? Are you going to bring up your faith? This, isn't, this doesn't have to be crazy calculated. There's a reason why I don't have 10 steps uh, of sharing your faith tonight. Because <laughs> just let the Spirit lead. Just ask him, what do you believe? Let's talk a little bit. See what happens. And last but not least, verse 17 on says, Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Merib, and I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. So now Saul is acting like the good guy, but he's got some messed up motivations. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. In other words, I don't want to kill him, because that's not good for my reputation. But if I put him out in war, they'll kill him. Kind of ironic if you look at David's life and his adultery and the whole issue there. Had his, uh, had his guy killed in war. And David said to Saul, who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Metholite, for a wife. Now, Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. And Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him. So not only did Saul pull back on his word and took one daughter and married him off to someone else, now he's, got, he's back to the same tricks that she may be a snare for him, that the hand of the Philistines might be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private, and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. You think David could pull back and be like, Nah, I'm, trick me once, shame on you. Trick me twice. But he doesn't. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and have no reputation? Keep in mind, this is humility. Like, he's got a reputation. We just saw it a few verses ago when they're singing about him. But he's humble. And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So David should have to pay a huge price to become part of the king's family and marry the daughter. But Saul's saying, just got to go kill a hundred Philistines and do something weird and bring them back. We'll just leave that there. And when, he and when his servants told David these words, it pleased David, come back to that, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200, so not just 100, 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. Drama. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Last thing we see is we are a redeemed family. We are a redeemed family. So David, <laughs> David is part of a new family. 
And it's got its ups and downs. I mean, think of the craziness of this family. You can be part of the family. No, no, you can't. Okay, you can be part of the family, but you got to do something weird with 200 Philistines. Okay, eh, this is weird. And then he comes in, and his father-in-law is now jealous, but then he's not. And then he hates him, and he wants him killed, but then he's like, eh, it's not so bad. Just crazy drama. Kind of sounds like the church, doesn't it? A beautiful mess of a family. But David's got to decide something, just like y'all got to decide something. I'm coming into something kind of crazy that would make me run. But at the end of the day, it's royalty. And royalty is royalty. And it's something that's a blessing to be a part of. And you got to decide, am I going to run from it? Am I going to critique it? Am I going to make fun of it? Am I going to deny being a part of it? Or am I going to come in and bless it? Am I going to bless it? course we see how jesus handled family he left his so that we could be a part of his he died for us he paid the ultimate sacrifice so that you and i might be children of god to be royalty with him you see there's two perspectives that i think extremes that we got to watch out when we look at the church when we look at the family in this room there's two extremes as missionaries that you can fall into and david avoided these things through humility and focus. The first one is holier than thou. The first one is you see, oh, this is broken. I'm going to come in here. I'm going to go to the world. I'm going to minister to people. And you start to see people as projects. And you stop seeing people as people. And, and so from the get-go, you think of all the relationships I have as simply the projects. I am the one who brings to them, and they are the ones who need me. And self-righteousness reigns the day. David could have done that. Verse 30 says he was highly esteemed. The dude could have said, you know what? Why do I even want to be a part of the king's family? Y'all are messed up. I got a better reputation than you. I could go find another girl. I could do, I got, I got girls singing about me. I'm good looking. Like he, he, could, he could bow out and just say, you know what? I'm better than you. But he humbles himself. He humbles himself. He said, it's no little thing to be a part of royalty. Listen, if you want a lesson in humility, get married. Your spouse, among other things, is God's gift of humility to you. Um, I, I Listen, I could preach all day. Sometimes the preaching's decent. Sometimes maybe it's not. But Tara, um, she sees my ups and downs. She, she reminds me just in looking at me, <laughs> seeing me at my best and my worst. I need Jesus. I don't ever forget when I hang out with my own wife. I need Jesus. I can't just show her my best and then be like, I'm going to come back when I'm feeling better. <laughs> like, like, she sees me all the time. She sees me at my worst. I need Jesus. Don't ever forget the Jesus you are proclaiming to others. You need as much today as on the day you first believed and on the day you see him face to face. Don't ever forget that. The second pitfall on the other end is a resentment to the broken people around you. Redeemed people or not. Church people or not. Think about the drama David just jumped into with his family. And if you get yourself in a position where you actually jump into other people's mess, which is what we're called to do as missionaries, then you are either going to be a church critic or part of the solution. You see, there's a crossroads. You're in ministry long enough, you get heartbroke because people are inconsistent, people are mean, people be, they're, they're haters, people are people, they're broken people. You can develop a hard heart toward people. And you want to pray for your pastor. Pray that as I minister to people, that my heart isn't hardened. That's what happens in ministry. I had someone come ask me the other day for benevolence. They said, hey, can we have a gas card? Because now we got a reputation as the church that gives out gas cards. And I just said, no. Like, I'm sick and tired of everyone asking for money all the time. And I just looked at them and I said, no. And they said, okay, thanks, bye. They went on to the next church. You've got to protect against bitterness, resentment. I had some repentance that needed to take place and did. I, um, I spent some time with, with someone uh, recently in the church who had uh, 
been put in a leadership position and it just didn't work out very well for them and their understanding of it um, didn't match the reality of it and it, it was just kind of hard and at first they were jaded because uh, they didn't succeed in the way that they wanted to and so we sat down and we talked about it and I said listen you can get mad or you can enact change you can get mad about it that people are broken that people are what people are they act like that or you can help enact change David jumps into the mess. David doesn't run away from this mess. I don't know how many of y'all want to marry into this family. But David jumps in. He says, I count it pleasure to be a part of this family. How do you think David served well? Verse 26, I'll go back to it. Verse 26 tells us all we need to know. When the servants told David these things, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. It pleased David well. You want to know how you stay content, how you stay focused, is that you recognize simply being a child of God, simply being what Jesus died on the cross for you for, just being part of his royal family is enough. Not how people are going to respond to your message, not how your interactions with people are when they're broken, when you're broken. Is it enough for you just to be a child of God? Is it enough? It was enough for David. Let me just end with this. When you become a believer, and the favor of God it rests on you, you can sit and bask in it and just enjoy it. Or you can be so blown away that you know every part of your life, your relationships, your workplace, your reputation, your family, every part of your life has to be changed so that you can be a missionary and see God's kingdom expanded. You want other people to have what you have. Everything's got to be redeemed. And you, accepting the truth of what Jesus did on the cross, you're the one who enacts that change. Because here's the sad, sad thing. Every person in this room tonight can say, I believe, and yet have relationships, friendships, workplace that is void of Jesus. And that's a shame to have something so beautiful living inside of you and yet not shown in the things that we do. So I don't know what God's telling you tonight, um, but as you're desire for God is renewed, your desire to see every part of your life redeemed for his sake uh, should be renewed. Let's pray.